0: The Lightly Literary Podcast The only book club podcast that greets Every single one of our imaginary listeners Before we start We sit them down in a long row of imaginary chairs And thank them for their imaginary listening hours So we greet you And thanks for tuning in Imaginary people out there It's all in our heads <laughs> I'm wondering if uh, As I wrote this I'm wondering if you understand what this reference is to
1: Uh... Imaginary
0: listeners, mm. it's a subtle one. This is this yeah, is perhaps know. not the best bit that I've chosen to begin a podcast with. I'm not sure. What, what, it is because King Leopold's sister, near the end of her life, <gasps> oh, would make she would right. have two hundred chairs, and she would greet before starting yeah. dinners or something. She would set yeah. up like two hundred chairs in a row and greet imaginary people who weren't there for dinner. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, she
1: she had the um, Anytime that she had a guest yes. come over She would greet the empty chairs first And yeah, then yeah. And then wa- make her way to the actual person
0: <laughs> Gotta welcome the ghosts before anything else It's fitting, it's the title of the book we're doing King Leopold's Ghost, his sister saw a bunch of ghosts It is a classic case of book within a book Where I think I would read the book about her life it Sounds like she know, really right? went off the rails So Oh yeah I don't remember her name either, but the one who had spent time in Mexico, her husband was assassinated, and she spent the rest of her life kind of in paranoid, like, fervor and extravagance, I guess, because she'd spent so much money. <laughs> so yeah. That's one way to do it, I think. If you're going to live your life out losing your mind, that's um, at least do it in comfort and style, I suppose. If you don't know what I'm talking about, as Amanda uh, had no clue either. <laughs> Total mystery. Shrouded in mystery the beginning of this one. Uh, that is because we are here with a book club episode, which are our analytical deep dive episodes. Today's book club will be part two of King Leopold's Ghost, which is a historical account of the Belgian Uh, colonization of the Congo and the kind of horrors and terrible things that occurred under their control, or at least King Leopold's especially. If you're uh, in this episode for the wrong reasons or you clicked it by mistake and you're thinking, I never read that book and I don't know what that's about, that's okay. Feel free to hit pause and part one's already in the feed. Our book recommendation's in the podcast feed as well. So yeah, if you're listening to this one out of order, feel free to come back, but if you're up for a spoiler-filled discussion, then you're in the right place indeed. We have social media accounts on Instagram and Facebook. We'd appreciate if you followed the we are at the lightly literary podcast which is all one word so easy to search easy to follow that's where we do little promotions and reminders of what we're reading and what we have coming up so check us out on those pages again we'll be spoiling the whole book at this point amanda is there anything you want to put in for a content warning i guess i wanted to say everything from part one which i'm not yeah. even sure what we said in part one it's like racial colonial violence uh, there's system mm-hmm. system uh, sist- systemic systematic i would say is a better word uh beatings there's forced and slave labor it's basically any colonial misdeed or horror is going to be here anything we're missing there
1: i don't think so i think that that covers most of it well
0: yeah colonialism misdeeds and crimes and horrors is a pretty wide net so it, it encompasses many things um excellent okay any final thoughts on the book before we jump in any big picture things before we get to our challenge I don't think so. I'm, I'm, I think I'm ready. And uh, to be clear, though I didn't say the name of it, we're doing part two. This book is split into two parts, and so I forget yeah. the names of them, frankly, at this stage, because we'll be talking about the whole book. It doesn't quite matter, but that's the thing that we read for this, the uh, the second part, which I should look up the Called name. The Legacy or something? A, A
1: King at Bay.
0: A king at bay. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, he is relatively at bay in this one, so that makes sense. <laughs> Let's get to our challenge. Our first segment for a book club episode is a 60 second summary challenge. We each get 60 seconds on the clock to try and summarize everything that happened in part two of the book. I'm going to have you go first this week, Amanda. Um, I don't know why. Maybe just because I'm curious to see what you make of it. <laughs> I, at this point, have <laughs> forgotten most names. I also, I feel like I read the second part a little faster than the first, so I think my summary is going to be a little worse for for that reason but that's yeah. okay uh, I'm curious to see how this goes uh this is for all of our listeners out there who either read a while ago or maybe didn't read and so we can hopefully catch you up in a very brief and perhaps misguided way amanda do you feel ready for the challenge
1: i i think so
0: <laughs> okay you can start uh i'll start you let's say three two one go for it
1: uh so moral and casement continue their uh crusade against uh, leopold's rule in um the congo um, and they're eventually successful um and casement actually um gets accused of um uh, treason because he washes up um he he lands in Ireland after I think it's like World War One or World War Two, one of those two. Um, and he had been taught; it must have been World War Two because he was talking to the to the Nazis and trying to like, or the German, no World War One. He's talking to the Germans trying to get them to like help um, Ireland as far as like getting out from under the rule of England because he considers Ireland a colony as well. Um, and so he lands on the beach and has weapons and is taken in, and they eventually kill him um, because nobody really backs him once it's it's revealed that he's gay. Um, moral goes on to to more politics. He's kind of stymied at one point, um, and he Time. eventually dies. Okay.
0: Nice. Leopold well, dies got, too. We will count the death. <laughs> we count that. <laughs> yeah, they all die in the end. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> History. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, excellent. I don't think I'm in a fair. Well, actually you did pretty well. You almost got to the final kind of sections. So, that's what yeah. right. I'm curious to see if I can yeah, uh, make amends for that or fill in the blanks there. Nice. Okay. And I'll, I'll go in just a second here. I've got the timer already ready, so I'll just time myself. You got it. All right. Three, two, one, I'll start. Yeah, there's a political and journalistic crusade against the Congo, and it begins to take hold on an international level. Officially, other countries, especially Britain, begin to condemn the actions there, and Leopold, despite his kind of good propaganda works and his clever maneuvering, is ultimately like unable to fight the wave that's going against him, and as you mentioned, Mortal and Casement are the two big agents who kind of enact that change and and fight him. In the end, the Congo still is ruled pretty brutally, and even when it transitions over to Belgian official control after Leopold's death, things change, but not dramatically because there's still labor issues there. It's just um, not as much violence explicitly. A lot of the main characters, as they're called, uh, receive kind of ignominious ends and don't exactly end in glory. The Once Leopold dies, it loses the villain and kind of peters out. And the book ends with some thoughts and reflections on the history and how history has forgotten this event. And how, like, the media not failed, but struggled to... Lots of time. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah, struggled to sort of keep interest. Because once he makes the good point of once the villain, and Leopold anyway, was dead and gone, the public interest really waned. This is a pretty common... I think it's it's odd how many prescient lessons in the end of the book showed up about the media. It's why I wrote that question for you that we'll get to later. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if the book as a whole was worried about that. I mean, which is fair enough, the the conclusions of big historic uh historical texts don't have to have the same they, they can reach, you know, they can kind of like reach for broader conclusions and try and teach lessons from history and all that I, I guess I was just surprised how at the end of the book my thinking wasn't so much about here's what colonialism is and how it works it was mostly a lot about the media in the end or like how I don't know how people remember things or don't how information gets passed down or doesn't and so anyway some fascinating lessons I'm obviously way off the summary now but yeah there's there's what the book was about did we miss anything I guess caseman's kind of ending was he really treated him kind of like a main character, and so his yeah. fight for Ireland misguided and kind of fail, failing a big failure there yeah. fight for Ireland and kind of yeah how he was dragged through the you know public mud because of his homosexuality like mm-hmm. it's he gets kind of a main character tragedy treatment there I guess I, yeah, didn't, he does. I didn't mention him um, and then Leopold end of life I think as a character in that term or in that same sense rather he does kind of get some final looks from Hothschild, but i don't think he's as interested in him at the end of his life than he was you know in his heyday yeah Fittingly for enough, sure i was, guess
1: yeah he had his his little girlfriend that the belgians all hated right um, the, who he eventually married after his I wife know, died i know
0: secret well and then and then they you know rejected her inheritance or something it's like they tried to yeah. you know keep her out yeah and a little touch of melodrama and interpersonal kind of um shame and drama in the end, which, I don't know, that's a decent inclusion, too. It's funny, we'll get to this in the essay questions, let's just dive into our quotes now, but I I kind of grew to like those little character beats, so to speak. I mean, I just think, Mm -hmm. I don't know, you have to give a reprieve from some of the brutal facts of history at times, which... I don't know. I guess I appreciated that. We'll answer those things later. Let's get to our quotes, as I said, for clarification. So Quotes for Clarification is a segment we always do for every Book Club episode, and it's essentially just where we discuss things that we want to. We dig into some specifics, and we obviously cite some quotes about things we want to chat about. Shall we start with your quote? You have written down the word pimpery, which, (laughs) let's go. (laughs) Speaking
1: of his wife. um, Yeah, Caroline's here. On page 266, it says, Less than a year later, she remarried, that being Caroline, Um, her husband, none other than the former French officer Durio, her original boyfriend and pimp. If she shared some of her fortune with him, his was surely one of the most successful feats of pimpery of all time. Um I just thought that the use of the word pimpery was hilarious. Um, But also, um, in in a broader sense, this is one of the things that I liked about Hawkschild's writing, is that he connects these ideas that are, you know, that started off in the Victorian era, but they seem to resonate with us, like, even now. It's it's so contemporary in a lot of ways, this um, almost story of... um, of greed and, and mm-hmm. political nefariousness and stuff. And so the, the use of words like pimpery and, and also like comparisons to like Wall Street and stuff like that. I just really appreciated that he, that Hawkschild was able to keep like honing in that this is not just like some ancient history thing, something that we can just be like, oh, wasn't that? You know interesting in the past, but something that
0: you know still resonates today and it was um there's some interesting claims i don 't have the quotes ready, but I remember them in the those ending chapters some interesting claims from Belgians kind of pro leopold Belgians. That mm-hmm. in there that's the classic fallback I mean in America, our version of this is just with slavery. it's the classic like that was so long ago, you know, haven't we moved on? can't we can't we leave this behind us and just think of it as history not present all that kind of it's a pretty classic line of argumentation if you're trying to sort of downplay those things or I guess as they say just move on from them um, but mm-hmm. people were doing it for, with the Congo like comically short at like a couple yeah. years you know like ten years after, and it's like, well, yeah <laughs> that's that's definitely not if you want to claim historic distance or historical distance surely you got to wait longer than 10 to 20 years uh why don't yeah. you call me in 100 years <laughs> and i guess we can we can just take up that line of reasoning uh the other obvious connection or obvious thing with that is always like well how's the how's the congo doing do they need those billions of dollars back at this moment it seems like it would be yeah. relevant uh to their <laughs> yeah. livelihoods and how they live and everything so i don't know but yes they, that was fascinating to see that come up too um, Mm. Did you find Carolyn, who gets, maybe we're overplaying how much attention she gets, but when he wants to study Leopold as a man and kind of look at his foibles and a little bit of how he's just living his life, I think, did you like the way they used her and the press? Because, again, it's just that way he wants to talk about the media, and it's part of his media analysis is just that the Congo didn't even hurt Leopold as badly as these interactions did, as his kind of... um. Is it, would we call it pedophilia? I mean, it, the age difference, she was 16 and he was 64 when they met, right? Right. Um,
1: but, and, it, but there's yeah. also, he he implied to, Hochschild implied that there were perhaps some dalliances that he had that might have been with even younger girls.
0: Yeah. So th- it's this kind of obsession that the media had at the time and how it turned the public against him. It's such a modern parable, too, though, because this is often how things go for public figures, whether they're political mm-hmm. or otherwise. It's just that their downfall is often about something that we would consider, like, personal or frivolous or silly. Right. It's, you know, compared to murdering, you know, perpetuating the murder of 10 million Congolese. Like, obviously, an affair is not that big of a deal um, and it is, right. you know, a personal matter, though the age thing is... I don't know. It's it's one of those legal things, too, where I'm like, well, that's uh, in today's language. That's a uh, pedophile. I don't know yeah. if that's obviously some cultural historical differences there using that term. But it's um, anyway, it's pretty it's pretty ugly stuff. But still, compared to his political dealings and the colonial stuff, it's anyway. Uh, but the lesson there being, yeah, the media fixated on that. And that's kind of what ruined his reputation in the end. That's just how history goes.
1: Right. Yeah, that's uh... <laughs> It's all about the scandal and um, and, and for her it like yeah. it wasn't even about the age. Like they didn't care like about age differences um, in, Not in as the much media. As, they were yeah, just yeah. yeah, they were just like, Oh, this this mistress, right? Like how dare he step out on his his queenly wife <laughs> and yeah,
0: and stuff yeah. like that. So What's the who's the modern equivalent? Is it Leonardo DiCaprio? Because he is keeps dating uh, twenty two yeah. year olds. And that's kind of the ongoing joke about him. Have, yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen, this is a big aside now, but have you ever seen the the chart somebody made? Somebody made like an official, they did the graph of it, like a line chart? No. It's just wild, because you see his age obviously goes up one year every year but and and then it sort of tracks his line of age growth versus like current girlfriend age and you see them they just rise and then fall back down so it's like once they hit a certain age i think like 24 he just immediately goes and dates another like 22 year old again and so his line of course it's you know linear straight line up but theirs looks yeah. like a little it's just like a little mountain ridge because it's like they spike and then goes down that <laughs> spikes and down and it's just like holy shit Anyway, I know it's a very long tangent now, but it, I don't know. There were just so many little modern connections that Hothschild sets up. Obviously, the Leonardo yep. DiCaprio one is – I'm just bringing that to the table. He did not bring that up. But it's um, – <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, it's a good point, too. And I, I – I, maybe I just kind of gave in to the writing style or something, but the Carolyn bits I did really enjoy, even though were they relevant? Maybe not as much as he made it seem like they were, but I just – gave it gave some kind of – I gave a reprieve or something in the book. It's like, I can't read... Mm. You know, if every chapter were like the chapter where he discusses the murder and, like, the official historical work that's been done to try and understand the death count, do you remember that one? I got a yes, quote from that one. Yes,
1: with, with all the numbers, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's like, if every chapter were like that, would you have enjoyed it more?
1: No, not necessarily. Yeah. I, I think that it was it was good to include that information, but, yeah, if. If it were only that kind of information, I would want it in, like, pamphlet form. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, and that's and that's exactly why I think people throw the novelistic term at this, just because he does work the margins and is willing to indulge some kind of storytelling. But, uh, yeah, the chapter, of course, is essential, and I, like, I do like that that chapter, he approaches it like an outline. He does it almost textbook style, where it's sort of, yeah. all right, readers, we really have to—I'm going to I'm gonna keep it simple. I'm going to organize with numbers. I'm just going to give it a clear, like, outline style of, okay, Okay, I'm going to hit it point by point, almost like listing things. Yeah, which I th- thought worked. Um, one sentence from that I wanted to discuss quickly. Faced with undeniable oh sorry, yeah. Faced with undeniable evidence of massive population loss, Leopold's apologists then now blame sleeping sickness, and it is true that sleeping sickness and other diseases would doubtless have taken many lives even if the Congo had come into the twentieth century under a regime other than his. But the story is more complicated for disease rarely acts by itself alone. Epidemics almost always take on a drastically higher and more rapid toll among the malnourished and the traumatized. The Nazis and Soviets needed no poison gas or firing squads to finish off many of those. Who died in their camps And then he talks about some science And how that kind of works Of course, can't resist the Nazi-Soviet connection Which I also at least appreciated <laughs> um, I know we didn't harp on it in the first part But we just kind of gave it a close eye You know, kind of a side eye At least he goes out of his way in part two at the end to explain himself. Did you catch that? There was like a paragraph where he finally just says why he brings that up. It's essentially just Western. Well, I don't. Well, maybe or maybe this is how I was reading his intent, but it's essentially just that Western bias of because we conjure in our minds when we think of authoritarianism, which he takes aim at in the end, kind of in the end. Those are just the things we conjure because. The death toll and the impact of World War Two just reign supreme in the Western world. And so I Mm. think that's why he's doing it. It's also why, again, in the land of, I don't know, historical arguments, you just can't avoid those two spheres of influence. Like you just kind of have to bring them up because they're the most widespread and death toll counting highest. Regimes of that type. So he he made... It wasn't... Yeah, he didn't fully explain himself. Like, he didn't take pages to do it. But there was a clear... He clearly had a sentence in the end, something like... Or something to that effect, something like, you know, you just can't not reference those regimes. So I at least appreciated it. But yeah, the quote about the sleeping sickness, I think... Of course, estimating is impossible. He goes through why that is and does thorough documentation there. But I like that he doesn't resist the complexities and kind of shows the interrelationships between all the different factors and how, of course, 10 million people weren't killed. It's just that you have to also take into account po- how population growth plummets at the time, and how over right. the course of that long of a period, there's there's the quote from a person observing a village saying, "There's no one between age seven and fifteen here. Why? You know, how come all the kids are only like one through five and not the other age groups?" And it's like, well, yeah, you have to investigate those really subtle things.
1: Right. Yeah. I I also appreciated that he went through and and discussed because at the beginning in the introduction, he wrote down um, that the reason he started um, investigating and researching uh, the Congo is because he had read somewhere that there was like, Millions who had lost their lives, and so I, I appreciated that he kind of calls back to that and explains like what that actually means, and like how it's it's difficult to pinpoint particular numbers in this case, um, despite. And also, it did not help that they kept hiding numbers, right? That yeah, <laughs> that yeah, yeah we'll specifically get there too. Was like, <laughs> don't tell people. Well, and should <laughs> so, we? Um,
0: actually, let me just do my next quote then. Perfect segue. Yeah, this is um, I thought one of the more powerful. I don't think he intended it to be, perhaps, but it certainly jumped out to me, and I found it one of the more powerful quotes of the entire part, two. It is basically when he says, The Congo offers a striking example of the politics of forgetting. Leopold and the Belgian officials who followed him went to extraordinary lengths to try and erase potentially incriminating evidence from the historical record. One day in August 1908, shortly before the colony was officially turned over to Belgium, the king's young military aide Gustave Stingelhamber walked from the royal palace to see a friend in the Congo state offices next door, and they're both feeling really hot, and then they, one of them touches a the radio I'm summarizing. It says then jumped to his feet. It was burning hot. When the men summoned the janitor for an explanation, he replied, "Sorry, but they're burning the state archives. The furnace has burned for eight days, turning most of the Congo state records to ash and smoke." I will give them my Congo, Leopold told him. But they have no right to know what I did there. Is there no more damning quote than that final one? If that's a real, you know, as, as I'm assuming, I didn't actually check the citation for it. But if that's a real quote, even in memory, even you know paraphrased. That there, It's all you need. What more condemnation could we ask of for? Yeah.
1: That's, that's basically him saying, yeah, I did those things, and I know
0: it. Yeah, and when you're burning yeah. and trying to shred, in this case not shred but burn, that much evidence. I mean, it's, a, yeah. again, a pretty damning act. And I thought it was such a great, I don't know, illustrative point about how— the, the work that was done to sort of help the public forget. And once Leopold dies, of course, another major point made in the book is that when you lose your central villain, you lose the intrigue. And if it's true in a movie, it's true in real life, sadly. And that is just kind of true. If the main intrigue, if the main character, in this case, main villain, goes away, people's interest wanes pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, and that's what Morell was uh, kind of warning everybody about, um, initially, too. He's just like, well, yeah, When once Leopold... He, he like, is so... Pres- he just could kind of tell what was going to happen. He said, hey, once Leopold dies, like, we still need to address the congo we need to attack it from other pers, like other angles not just like making leopold a right. villain um but the others were just like ah, it's fine it's all good
0: yeah <laughs> difficult to drum up the same public interest the same amount of public exactly. interest for sure yeah. yeah and it was yeah i think that quote from leopold even again if in memory was was one of the ones of the whole book for me. I don't think I'm overstating it to say it, too. I've, I really thought that was a stunning admittance by him. Um, mm-hmm. And otherwise, a person who, in, at least in his public persona for sure, played it much more kind of formal and close to the vest. Like, he he wasn't going to reveal his misdeeds. He wasn't going to own up to anything. So, yeah, I mean, a bit of a selfish maneuver by him there, protecting himself. Then again, oh, yeah. it's like, man, that's it is damning. <laughs> um, how about yeah. the next quote for you?
1: Um, so I chose one um where it's an example of like the type of character analysis that I did like because I think yeah. here with with his writing I had mentioned this in in the previous episode as well is sometimes the the, character is, the characterization the the motivations that he assigned to people and and stuff like oftentimes it was either. He was jumping to a conclusion without giving us any kind of like insights into why he thought that um and other mm-hmm. times it was he would have like a behavior and give an example of a behavior and then would like state the motivation even though it was obvious from the behavior so um so what I found um but I also found that there were some times when he he managed it very well, and this is an example on page one eighty six of where I felt like he gave us some insight into personality um but it wasn't either like unnecessary or um jumping to a conclusion okay yeah so uh this is um on page 186 moral was all of a piece his thick handlebar mustache and tall barrel chested frame exuded forcefulness his dark eyes blazed with indignation the millions of words that would flow from his pen over the remainder of his life came in a handwriting that raced across the page in bold, forward-slanting lines, flattened by speed, as if they had no time to spare in reaching their destination. Hmm. So I thought that's, that was just like a nice example of explaining what the person looks like and also what their handwriting is, because handwriting can be a great indicator, I think, of like personality. And just kind of explaining um, what... What he sees in that and how that relates to who moral is as a as a person uh, or even like, I guess, if, if it's novelistic, a character. Um, and yeah, I just I just I really appreciated that. kind of writing
0: and i found you know that's the type of quote that comes from you can tell a lot of personal time spent in exposure because undoubtedly he's poured over the letters for a a good chunk of time (laughs) i don't want to assume how this historian spends his you know academic and professional time but you can just tell from reading something like that that it's he's had to consider these primary sources at least a good amount and um Connecting, yeah, you're right. That's less bothersome than maybe some of the things in the first part. Connecting personal motivation and sort of attributing a in that case handwriting style to match a character trait that he kind of wants the person to embody it's also though impressive there at some point he doesn't it maybe was in that quote you read but he kind of just does the math on it like how much he had to have written every single day you know on average and it it is pretty (laughs) it's like pretty imposing he dedicated his yeah the overwhelming majority of his life to it yep That's for sure. Yeah. Um, One more quote for me, and then we'll do our imaginary essays, but I just had to get this one in. You know the press Amanda just doesn't treat l- rulers like this anymore. Let's read some. <laughs> let's read some invective. <laughs> let's go to some um, people who just really hated Leopold and were fully against him. Um, this is from two twenty two. The king's personal foibles also turned him into an irresistible target for a world pet press stirred up by moral. The large beard now turned white made him a cartoonist dream. His bulky cloaked figure stalked through the pages of Europe's newspapers. His beard dripping blood. His hands clutching shrunken heads from the Congo, his eyes hungrily devouring the dancers of a Corps du Ballet. I don't know what that is. It's French. <laughs> he sits down to <laughs> dine on a severed African head garnished with bayonets. Tsar Nicholas II complains that his knout is ineffective, so his cousin Leopold, dressed in tiger skin, recommends the chicote, which is the you know the whip made of. Um, Wait, what is it made of? Some hide. Hippo. hide. there you go. Hippo hide, yeah. Uh, Leopold's rejected daughters sadly beg their father for Carolyn's cast-off clothing. Leopold and the Sultan of Turkey share a good laugh and a bottle of wine while comparing the massacre of the Congolese to that of the Armenians. So it's obviously just cataloging all of these attacks. Do we, does the media get to have this much brutality anymore? I don't think they do, really. (laughs) Do they get to be (laughs) that? (laughs) Like, imagine a cartoon of a current world leader eating out of a person's skull. I don't, it's, um, yeah it's interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah I, I feel like there would be a lot more complaints about that. <laughs> yeah about
0: bias or I, I couldn't even yeah. really think I mean obviously there's a media source for everybody these days from the niche to the mainstream so it's not like we're it's not like we have less media or fewer media outlets but I do wonder yeah where's I don't where are attacks like that going to come from at least to get into the public consciousness I don't know is it is it really just YouTube and like Twitter memes that are gonna you know that are that mean <laughs> I, I was just trying to think I, through yeah. like where do, where do things that cr- biting come from you know
1: yeah yeah i don't know because like uh, i mean you have some political cartoons that are still making their way through but they're more like highbrow they're more like i mean right, when right. i think of political cartoons now i think of like new york times um, yeah new yorker but i don't even <laughs> yeah, those aren't even political they're
0: more like Uh, I don't like social observation ish. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And yeah, when I think of, too, if you think of current world leaders or if people want to critique Putin or during the last election we had for president with the Trump and uh, Biden, I'm just thinking back to like the harshest critiques about those people I can remember. Just big public figures, big leaders. And I don't I would anyone draw, you know, where's the image of the one of them drinking out of a person's skull like that's obviously they're not also committing genocidal atrocities in a colonialist fashion, but still, it's like, yeah, I'm sure there's some Putin stuff out there, Ukraine, since they're engaged in a war with them, I'm I'm sure there's things like that that I'm just not privy to. But anyway, it was, yeah, I just thought it was noteworthy. I figured I'd bring it up, and it's um, quite a paragraph showing the treatment he got in the media, so. Yeah. The receipts come and due for Leopold and his horrors. Um, All (laughs) right. (laughs) Any final thoughts on the quotes? Let's jump to our essays, I think. Is it time? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Imaginary Essay is our third segment we'll do today on the pod. And it is just what it sounds like. We've each prepared an essay question and then a, a response to that essay question for one another. We have not actually, to be clear, written the essays at all. We are just doing this as like a thought exercise just to get some analysis in and give us something to think through and talk over as we consider the book. Uh, I just wrapped up a point, so let's have you go first then, Amanda. My essay sure. question for you is about the media. It's pretty open-ended. I know I texted it to you last last night kind of late Uh, it's essentially just what do you what did you learn about the media in this book I I don't think it's his primary concern obviously since most of the book is about kind of the government in the Congo and the colonialism there and the horrors but I couldn't help but end the book and just think that this person Hothschild this historian had a lot of points to make about the media it's again not the primary thread but I couldn't get it off my mind so I figured I'd throw it to you as an essay question Uh, take it away what do you think
1: uh, so, what I I think that he was trying to, to make a point of uh, regarding the media is that, I mean, just, like, do your own research, really, because you can't, like, the media is unreliable um, for a lot of things. So, if you're interested in mm-hmm. something, then to, to do your own research into it, which is fitting, since he's a, you know, research historian. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's like, find the original source. Um is is what I think he's trying to encourage us to do, which is funny since we're actually relying on him, yeah, and his interpretation <laughs> of of several different key sources, but you know mm-hmm. whatever yeah <laughs> um, so uh, the reason that I, I reached that conclusion is um, for two different reasons. Um, the first one is uh, King Leopold's propaganda push and and his lobbying uh, for his rule over Congo. The Congo so there's a there's a lot of focus on that in the first half of the book in the first part um uh showing like the the duplicitous nature of Leopold but also the people that he kind of uses in order to get what he wants um so that uh, there's different associate he creates all these different associations with like really great sounding names. Oh yeah, the nonsense um, and some names. Ba- yeah. <laughs> and with with like these backers who were like, "Oh yeah, I'll definitely, you know, throw my name in for that cause." But then like within a year, these foundations, these associations would just like no longer be active, but then he would hide the fact that they were no longer active. Um Yeah. And so these nice, great sounding committees, um, but that don't actually exist, um, but that helped him with his causes to, to be like, oh no, see, I'm, I'm actually like a really good guy and I'm helping the Congo.
0: Um, wasn't there one where they tried to track down, there's a, there's a line of exploration and investigation where they tried to track down, I think it's where some funding went and then they discovered it was... They tracked it to a lawyer's office, and then the lawyer pointed them across yeah. the street, and it was just a yeah. guy who was paid to sit there. Like, there was that was yeah. the whole—that <laughs> was the operation. I don't remember the title of that organization, but it fits in— I don't either. Yeah, it's the same. fits in that same type of logistics where it's like, well, this is just a shadow yeah. organization with a name, and it's just one guy who sits here all day and does nothing.
1: Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of misdirection um, that the media— kept reprinting, right? Um, right. Uh, he was keeping everyone in the dark to where it's like each each person within his outfit, each person within um, a certain aspect of his uh, operations. They only knew what was going on with them. They didn't know what was going on with the, with the others so that uh, he could keep control over those things. And also there would be no crosstalk to find out, Oh, well this isn't right. Or, Oh, I, I why would he do this in conjunction with this? So he was keeping Fred. everyone, even his employees in the dark. Um, so that like trying to interview an employee You're not going to get the whole story. So, um, the idea of like relying on on workers' testimony and stuff like that is "Eh, maybe for some things, but not all things, you could get the real story. Right. Um, And then um, the fact that he was using the, the Arab slave trade as a guise for going into the Congo in the first place, and everybody jumped on board with that and like made it into this whole big, like, you know, oh, what a what a great dude for, like, going on this, essentially, like, a crusade against uh, the Arab slave traders. Um, so just, like, using the media in that aspect to, to put out a lie and then build on that lie um, is something where, again, the media kind of failed in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the fact that he, like, straight up paid off certain media outlets and also like threatened independent writers like moral and, and casement and others. Um, he, he was using money and his power to influence the media. Um, except for obviously moral and, uh, casement, but yeah, he, he could influence them in that way as well. So again, not trustworthy as far as like just the, the mass media outlets there. Right. Um, yeah. And then we have, like, the actual depictions of the media, which also, like, goes hand in hand with the depictions of the the governments um, that he mentions in here. Um, they're mm. often easily swayed by either money or political interference. So he uses, like, the people that he has on his bankroll, which includes several politicians, to either pay off the media or to, like, send the, the, the political figure in to somehow, if not money-wise, but perhaps power-wise influence and say, hey, maybe you shouldn't run that story or, or, hey, I have a different perspective. So, um, the control that is exerted and, and the lack of, um, integrity for some of the, the media outlets as well and also the unwillingness of other media outlets to actually do the legwork and they just like there was that one example where one um uh one media outlet like one newspaper printed something and all the other ones just like reprinted with that yeah
0: huge deception huge it was (laughs) when he sent he sent the three judges one of whom he thought for sure would do exactly what he wanted and he sent the three different judges to the Congo to do an an unbiased impartial report and of course they wrote it in very dense language but it was also scathing and basically condemned I think it said the sentence was it confirmed every single accusation that it ever it's like they corroborated every single accusation that moral had made and who's the person before him the very First guy. S- s- William Stanley? Um, some, oh what, gosh.
1: Uh, s- um, Stanley was the dude
0: who. The, the first one into yeah, the yeah. he was the explorer Shell um, yeah, shill
1: Washington right Williams, was- yeah, the, yeah I knew yeah, I knew Washington it had George some alliteration
0: <laughs> it was like <laughs> yeah. yeah anyway but it's like it confirmed everything that those people had claimed and then yeah of course yeah. he buried the report he paid someone to write a biased and incorrect summary of it and then because yeah. it got out there first the media just wanted to be first they care about breaking the news not representing exactly. the news it's, it's a phenomenon we've not gotten out of today still of course there's like, there's real attention and benefit to being the first to say something, not the most accurate to say something. And so, yeah, a very potent example. That's probably, yeah, one of the one of the examples in the book.
1: Yeah. Um, And then also, like what we were just talking about with with Caroline, uh, the media seems more um, more inclined to report on scandals Mm-hmm. And Im- getting immediate readership versus um, actually doing like consistent reporting on things that, you know, actually matter. So focusing on the, right. the fact that he had a relationship with Caroline and perhaps he even like flaunted that a bit so that he could <laughs> kind of bury um, news about the Congo in that way. But um uh, the the focus on on his relationships, his interpersonal relationships, rather than what he's doing as a leader, um, right. that kind of stuff is is still rampant today in a lot of ways. So it, it the the media outlets pander to what they believe the readership wants rather than, you know, what they feel is like morally their moral obligation to print
0: yeah and it's fascinating too how moral he emphasizes this with moral time and again how tiny his operation was at one point yeah. he even Hostchild goes out of his way to characterize his operation as just like it's it basically he ran it out of his bedroom or something and it's just sort of yeah. like well <laughs> um kind of mirroring in some ways the maybe blogger atmosphere or the kind of i don't know Substack subscription Twitter type Journalists of today where it's like they kind of Run everything just yeah It's like they're world traveling or even Interviewing people And like going to see people it's kind of like You can do it all from this you know Bedroom tiny little space these Four walls of course back then even More impressive he must have been sending letters Like a fiend I know right like constant
1: I I, I forgot how many letters he Sent in like a year but it Was like yeah
0: Several a day, yeah. at the least. Yeah, 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 for yeah for a sustained period of time. Yeah, yeah, fascinating study. Any any final ways you want to sum up the his take on the media or how he incorporates them? It's yeah, I don't know. I the one thing I was thinking of as you were reviewing it was um, do you remember with I think it was moral or casement, but I think it was moral. There was a line about how. When he was publishing a magazine, he made stuff up himself, but I, I feel like he referenced it, but didn't give a lot of time to exploring that. But I think it, the example was that he made up firsthand accounts written from this perspective of Congolese, which now we know was almost impossible to get. Like there were very few right. people in the Congo themselves who were able to speak for themselves or certainly write for themselves and convey their own perspective. Do you remember that? It was, in, it was early in the book. Maybe I'm misremembering.
1: I don't remember that. Okay.
0: I'd have to, yeah. No, I It wasn't, you know, I didn't do the double checking and all that, so we'll yeah, let that yeah. point go. But I, I just remember some brief reference to, like, even moral himself had to, <laughs> to to get the numbers up, right, to boost the page counts and to make sure he published things constantly. Even he had to resort to some kind of, like, making stuff up. But mm. anyway, yeah. I, oh, yeah. Sorry. So final points on the media? Any final things to say? <laughs>
1: He doesn't seem to trust the media, especially back then. So,
0: not that I blame him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, then, but that intriguingly paired with the fact that wouldn't you call Moral one of the heroes? I mean, he like yeah, really know, admires right? the work that he did. So it's like...
1: Yeah, so it's like yeah. independent media outlet versus um, mass media outlet, I suppose.
0: Yeah, you got to be wary of the, of the latter. And then, of course, specialization helps where it's kind of moral. That was his whole yeah. life. <laughs> he wasn't trying to run exactly. a company doing 20 different beats. He was just focused on one thing, laser focused. Yep. And no wonder a historian would like that. That's what historians are. So <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> you want to throw your question my way? I'll get it rolling.
1: Yep. Um, several blurbs about this book that I've read have described this book as novelistic. Um, so just in what ways do you think that this reads like a novel? And in what ways do you think that it actually fails as being novelistic?
0: Yeah. The I think the reason that would be big picture would be because it's not like a textbook or an encyclopedia at all. And so I, it's interesting though, because I feel like when you and I dip into historical works and kind of popular history books like this, Mm-hmm. don't we always just kind of go for the novelistic ones I guess? I mean we've done this Devil in the White City is far more so because it invents, literally invents things <laughs> this book does not invent, it tries to infer, which is a quite a different task I would argue and so I think there's that comparison also when you look back at the Oscar Wilde book we did, that was kind of novelistic yeah. in that it tracked it chronologically and it showed his personality and it sort of used events from his life to infer things about him, it's, I don't know, is this just how history gets written, I guess? How many history books a year do you read?
1: Uh, only the ones with you.
0: I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, and I'm I'm kind of like a three to four a year kind of a person, or or I'll dabble in one for a little bit. But I just, so I don't know, I, I guess I'm not reading the dense histories like autobiographies or biographies that are not novelistic, you know? I guess I am mm-hmm. just kind of cherry picking ones in my own reading. Um, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is I didn't find this especially novelistic compared to those. But our exposure through this podcast and my exposure just more broadly in my own life is not wide. So I'm not really an authority to speak on what makes a history work novelistic. Um, Let's dig into why that might be in this book, I guess, specifically. The number one reason, I think not even close, is character work. The author, Hothschild really does want to have some main characters going throughout the book and goes out of his way to build up their background stories, their personalities, their histories. So let's just run through a couple. I don't even have quotes for these because it's just so obvious. <laughs> um, Leopold and Stanley, they're on one side, for example. Leopold, obviously, his personal foibles are included, his affairs, his perhaps pedophilia or you know whatever term we should apply to that, his failings with his sister and his daughters you know interpersonal kind of relationship stuff there all of that's documented on the on his side too with him in this effort is Stanley who in the let's not forget the first part of the book his backstory is pl- explored and plumbed like In depth, his his literal childhood is on the you know on the board for exploration and analysis. The author goes out of his way to talk about how he was an orphan, how that motivated him, his years exploring Africa, and you know going out there into the wilds and trying to document things. So yeah, there's real character work there. And then as the book continues, and there is an anti-Congo colony sort of side that establishes itself we've got moral encasements who are also treated like characters their backstories are given though not as much as stanley's to be fair um their histories are traced they're they're entire lives are, are documented including caseman who we already mentioned this but ends up in a real tragic position he can't let the crusade against colonialism go you know n- nor should he have really but he takes it all the way and gets imprisoned for his work um trying to promote irish independence he's the first knighted person in what like mm-hmm. 500 years to to be imprisoned is that right
1: I yeah, think, something or, like yeah that. it's
0: close to that, but it's, so, you know, he has a full, his, you know, Shakespearean tragic arc happening, basically, in this book, yeah. um, and, you know, of course, it's it's done from history's distance. I don't think Hothschild overreaches, really. In the first half of the book, we kind of hit a couple points where it's like maybe his inferences were a little too much or he was trying to assume a little too much motivation where he should just let the facts speak. I Again, it didn't bother me throughout the book. I thought he was pretty even-handed throughout, but it's clear that he wants to have main characters throughout the story. That That's my kind of yeah. rundown of the main characters. Any thoughts on those or just kind of his approach to those people?
1: Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Like the, it seemed a bit heavy-handed sometimes in the way that he treated his characters and and Casement's um, especially like he really likes foreshadowing but like really heavy-handed foreshadowing especially in Casement's case like oh these letters these assignations that he he journals um (laughs) they don't end well for him like I mean you mentioned that like four or five times he is a quite
0: a memorable (laughs) cliffhanger at the end of a chapter where he brings up both their names says that they'll both go to prison and then says one of them will die in prison but doesn't say which one so it's yeah Yeah. he goes that far too I mean that's you know foreshadowing in the most most blunt force way but it's Yeah. uh, yeah I guess I can't begrudge him those moments creates intrigue keeps people reading and when you have to use this many primary sources and researched facts it's difficult to balance at all yeah I think it's tough Um, of course let's make brief allusion or brief reference just a couple quick examples to the fact that a lot of those character beats do take assumptions and he has to infer things about people's motivations and um, kind of perceptions of the world here's a quick one from 63 this is about Leopold and Stanley um, it says, although he had lived a pampered life in yachts and palaces, Leopold was, of the two, the wiser in many ways of the world. He had taken the measure of Stanley's ambition, of his immense personal capacity for hard work, of craving for constant flattery, and of his need for a sponsor. Stanley was still smarting from a lack of British interest in the Congo, and he was delighted to meet a monarch who admired what he had done and wanted him to do more. That's a totally invented combination of, I'm sure, provable factors, but that exact interplay between those two people is an invention, you know, but it's it's intriguing because it's not one that I think a reader would pick up on as sort of overstepping or overzealous on Hothschild's part. It sort of just reads very cleanly given all the research and all the quotes and everything. Like Those are pretty easily and demonstrably provable facts about both people. Um, and so he just uses those things about both to kind of mash together what their relationship must have been like or sort of what would have motivated their relationship these moments are subtle i wanted to find just one good one of it hopefully that's a good one i thought it was but and it does Mm -hmm. kind of permeate the book but like little assumptions like that are moments where he tries to really tie together how these personalities were working
1: right yeah there's a lot of especially with like leopold um when Leopold uses a person, cause there's another person that he uses the, the American lobbyist. Um, but the, the interplay, the, the, the communications between some of these characters, characters, these people, especially like, uh, with Leopold's people, um, he, there's a lot of, just like with Stanley where there's a lot of analysis of, Oh, well he was playing on this perspective of stanley uh, his ego which he played on the lobbyist as well um which i was like okay yeah that makes sense um but you know i I don't see any any evidence for
0: that either Yeah. yeah yeah i think the other thing i want to point out and this is to Hoth's child's credit and benefit i think And this Mm -hmm. comes up with Rom. Rom was kind of one of the unquestioned monsters of this book, (laughs) like one of the clear, you know, clearly documented direct atrocities and murders and everything. With Leopold, Mm -hmm. Leopold, everything is abstract and the records are burned. So it's, you know, we know of his horrors, but not it's so difficult to, you know, pin one on him, so to speak. Uh, But Rom, it's like it's there's just everything is documented anyway. And this is on page 138 about Rom. It says whether accepting this surrender was anything that risky to begin with. We do not know One of the benefits of service as a force public officer, like Ram, was that the nearest journalist was usually thousands of miles away, so you and a few friends could largely shape the record of your exploits. I guess just this point seems critical to me in this whole entire endeavor. Like, think of today, for example. We've had a big push to video. Everyone has a camera on them basically at all times in modern life. Um, Another big push policy-wise that's happened is, so. for example, in police reform in that world, like body cams are becoming kind of a thing people expect where it's sort of like if there's no body cam, did it even happen? And even with those two things, even with everyone having video... And even with kind of us expecting to see direct evidence of stuff, even now we dispute findings <laughs> It's like even there's still yeah. there's is still public discourse and debate when if when a thing is videoed, there's still things of like well what happened in the minute before the video was turned on or what happened the minute it's like uh, it's it's odd because you would think that having second to second evidence of a th- of an event or second by second, I guess, evidence of an event would be enough at times, but still people quibble. And so, and again, that's in our modern life where we're absolutely overflowing with info. We have more facts and info than we could ever know what to do with. And it's, you know, and still isn't satisfying to some people, like when things happen, when, when world events occur. And so Mm -hmm. just imagine living this way where it's like, well, yeah, that happened 2,000 miles from here. And also it was four months ago and no one was there to see what, you know. <laughs> and so I, I think, I guess I give Hochschild the benefit of the doubt on a lot of his interpretations because of the kind of cross-reference thoroughness of some sourcing he does. But mm-hmm. it's also in the end, isn't this kind of all, it's all kind of an impossible task in a sense to understand these people perfectly. It's like, even with even with near perfect information... We still have these debates, and this this is an idea of interpretation and bias doesn't doesn't go away just because you have video yeah. of stuff. And so it's like, well, this was world that was so far from that. I mean, who? How do we? Yeah, it's it's a wonder, and it's very uh, th- thankful from the historian's point of view that people kept such thorough du- journals and diaries. That like yeah. it's like so much of history relied on that. Um, today, I guess we just have Twitter and email, and uh, that'll have to go into the Library of Congress or whatever. But yeah, so. And any thoughts on that it's just it just stood out to me because that's such a critical point to make when you're trying to understand these people as people yeah
1: what what i really like too is like when he Includes excerpts from letters or from um, journal entries and stuff, and I I've, I was like, yeah, that that's great because that actually does give us insight into these people as well and into into their psyche in in their own words, and I I appreciate that, and and when he follows that up with his own interpretations, and I'm like, yeah. I, I'm on board with that. Yeah,
0: I think you just you just kind of have to. The final point I'll yeah. make here, and this I'll, I won't do all the quotes here. I'll just kind of summarize just to speed this up a bit what about theme this is the other kind of big novelistic thing obviously the great novels that i love don't have a theme they just deal with many themes (laughs) so it's like i don't like moralizing children's stories that have a clear lesson like the rabbit and the tortoise or whatever uh tortoise and the hare but you still have to have ideas you're playing with right you still have to focus on motifs and ideas and call it themes call it whatever right um What did you think of the book's final presentation of themes? Because I thought it was fascinating, but a bit unexpected. It really does turn to sort of the history of this and that again i turn back to the media of things a couple final points he makes we already read the quote about the politics of forgetting but one of his major points is how quickly people's attention dissipates no matter how grand Mm -hmm. the atrocities or how important the movement it's you know people will start to forget pretty quickly especially when they have no person to pin things on when it becomes the the u.s is bumped into this in um Especially 2020, there was a lot of protesting and um, police brutality backlash and everything, and a lot of history coming back up. But it's clear that when you're when you're trying to fix a system and not blame a person, it's just a radically different. You just can't motivate people. It's radically different to get them invested and motivated. And so that, I thought, was a key point. Another one, he does have a quote on 299 about how the colonizers ended up writing the textbooks. And this is a classic kind of almost cliched refrain from historians, though, obviously, like a lot of cliches, there's like a truth at the core of it, which is just like, yeah, it's people who... Get to, you know, control the information Get to say what gets it said In the information, anyway yep. uh, But that's another kind of media point To, to simplify it, it's about how sure. Information gets remembered and how history gets Remembered, and did you think the book was Going to end up in a place talking about those issues I mean, it's not, it, it kind of permeates the whole story as to who gets To say what and who gets to decide and remember But um, I guess it's broadening Is that how we should phrase it, like he broadens The conclusion
1: That's, yeah, I I think that's a good way to put it for sure.
0: And so that, you know, that became a theme at the end. Uh, Another one on 302, this is about the United States interference. So when the Congo finally and very loudly and quickly wanted its independence and declared its independence, um, even though it was clear at the time that the country, the infrastructure of the country was not ready for it, there were not enough civil servants, there were not enough kind of like I don't know, engineers or like academic, like basically people to help things run people to help things like get made and get organized. They, they declared their independence anyway, and they deservedly so, but it didn't go very well. Also, of course, the CIA immediately follows up and murders their new like leader that was galvanizing people that was motivating people. He was a socialist and they had ties to Russia, of course. And so they orchestrated an assassination of, it was Lumumba, Lumumba. And, um, yeah, and you know, It makes sense, again, in the big history of the book to go chronologically and to keep exploring what happened to the Congo, what, you know, how do we see these threads play out after Leopold's colony was long gone. But it's it left for an interesting thematic reading because it's like, well is this book's themes about like subtle foreign intervention no it's about the total brutal systemic colonization of a place and what that looks like and how that goes and how the people who run it think about it and the perceptions of it and everything like that so i i just thought there were some i guess the point i'm making is this there were some themes at the end and the final chapters that i was just like huh i didn't expect him to think about these things or i didn't expect this book to care about you know subtle foreign interventionism or sort of like how post-colonial places are hampered by um acts done from other countries that weren't even controlling them like the cia example or how Mm -hmm. the colonizers get to write the textbooks and control the narrative after the events are done and um, this is all i think again decent generalizing and sort of it takes a big picture view of things which i respect i think that's what conclusions should do, but it, it yeah. ended some themes. To get back to the novel thing, it ended some themes in places I didn't quite expect. I guess.
1: Yeah, uh, the I figured that it would have stopped like when when he makes mention of like the colonizers writing textbooks. I was like that that could be um, a natural end to that because I think it fits in well with the idea of like. Media and and controlled information. When he went on to talk about the CIA meddling and stuff, I was like, oh, okay, so that's like an, a step further. But again, that still kind of is the idea of mm. controlling information because, like, that was a, a I'm sure like not a, a an operation that was you know common knowledge in the United States. Right. right. <laughs> so that's still in in. In a in a way, it is still controlling information, and also like you know, controlling information with with the Congo as well, where they they set up this uh, dictator. What was his name? It started with an M. Mupda. М- oh, yeah. They
0: it, it was like thirty or forty years he was there. I, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I forgot the name as well. But yes, the yeah. the figure who ended up becoming the leader.
1: Yeah, M, M- something. You can look it up if um, you want. Mubudu um, that was his name, Mobudu. Um, yeah, so that, that also is a form of kind of, like, uh, uh, keeping information in, in the hands of some, um, like, because they are, by, by inputting a dictator, they still have control, and that control could be, what the dictator is obviously going to be friendly to, um... America (laughs) and to America's allies. So the information that as a dictator he gives to his people will also be filtered through a particular lens. Um, So I guess in a broad sense, it could all be related to the idea of like um, information and how information is presented um, and and how information is untrustworthy. I guess I would (laughs) say that I think
0: that's where the that's where the book is clear as a history and not as a novel because it doesn't, it it almost doesn't know where to end the story, which is fair enough. It's history. History does not end. (laughs) You could just, you could just write another book about the Congo today and what it what's it like there? And what's the, you know, how are things going? And, and so, yeah, that's, uh, and maybe that's fitting enough then a good place to leave it where it's like, I think the novelistic quality to me anyway, it's all the character work, which, you know, You could take or leave. I think it mostly worked and had a couple, you know, maybe questionable moments, but on the whole, it was pretty, pretty effective and it kept me intrigued. And yeah, I think the themes then are the thing that it's kind of a little muddier, especially when it comes to wrapping it up. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's just history. <laughs> I thought it wrapped yep. up for my own opinion. I thought it wrapped up like decently, but I, I also yeah. just wanted to bring in some of those ideas that it's like, wow, that, okay, that's what this book is going to end with me thinking about, huh? It's like, I'm not so much thinking about the monstrosity of Leopold, even in the end, I'm thinking more about legacy and media and perception, which, um, you know, it's an interesting place to leave things. So there we go. Any final thoughts on the book's novelistic qualities? Did you find it novelistic?
1: uh no i i mm. think that he tried to make it novelistic um it he kept mentioning like um he, he made some like overt references to like oh characterization or if this were a novel then he does Leopold do would have a foil but he does have a foil and stuff like that <laughs> Surprise. <And it's> just, <laughs> yeah i just uh, meh.
0: yeah yeah, I think it's, yeah, there's no way It's kind of like when we finished Pandora's Jar People talked about the humor There's no way yeah. I would recommend it on its merits As humorous, but I would If somebody was interested in the history at least mention Like, yeah, she's kind of charming, or like, yeah, it's kind of Clever and kind of fun Just, With this one, I would never give this to someone And be like, whoa, man, it's like a novel I would give it to someone and be like, you gotta understand What cl- happened in colonial, you know Congo, and also the Writer is pretty, you know, it's like he Humanizes things and attempts to kind of Explore human elements and stuff. Like that's it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of a background recommendation rather than the primary one. Again, though, I don't read a lot of history books, so maybe this is really novelistic. So (laughs) loop back around to my initial point. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't really have a touchstone of a history book I've read that's really dense. So at any rate, all right, let's jump to our critical assistance. This is the part of the podcast where we go outside of our own opinions and selves to look at how critics review the book or just, you know, general analyses. Could be an article, could be from a video or something. I think we've both chosen um, reviews or articles this week. Why don't we have you go first, Amanda? Again, I, I was just the rambler. So now you shall be the rambler, <laughs> the ramblee. Anyway, um, what did you pick for your critical assistance? What would you like to discuss?
1: Uh, this is from the New York Times, uh, but from their archives. So this was written, I think, in 98. 99. 98, 99. Or, yeah, Whenever. R- around there. Yeah. Yeah. September 1st, 1998. Um, and this is called King Leopold's Ghost, Genocide with Spin Control. And it's written by Michiko Kakutani. Um, And so there's just like three pieces that I wanted to kind of look at. Um, Although much of the material in King Leopold's Ghost is secondhand, the author has drawn heavily from Jules Marshall's scholarly four volume history of turn of the century Congo and from the scramble for Africa, Thomas B. Packenham's wide-ranging 1991 study of the European conquest of the continent. Hochschild has stitched it together into a vivid novelistic narrative that makes the reader acutely aware of the magnitude of the horror perpetrated by King Leopold and his minions. It is a book that situates Leopold's crimes in a wider context of European and African history, while at the same time underscoring the peculiarly modern nature of his efforts to exert spin control over his actions. Um so here again like the we get the the term novelistic narrative and I'm just like I don't think that I would use that to yeah. describe this book. Um but I do like that she she does pinpoint that it is modern in nature because I do um agree with that because I think that a lot of the especially like with the media and, and the propaganda and everything else. I think that's very modern discussions.
0: Yeah. And the, it, it holds up very well. I mean, 25 years old, 24, it's not like this is an ancient history or something, but it yeah. does, I think, hold up in terms of lesson learning. We, we've just hit on so many today about yeah. relevant themes, ideas, and kind of applications to current stories and stuff. So yeah, I yeah. think it it does hold up as a, as a work of history. Yeah. Um,
1: as depicted by Hochschild, the people in Ghost emerge as larger-than-life figures, the sort of characters who might easily populate a Victorian melodrama, were it not for the tragic and very real consequences of their actions. Leopold himself comes across as a cartoon-strip megalomaniac, a mad, greedy king obsessed since adolescence with the idea of running a colony of his own, and intent throughout his career on covering his lust for money and real estate and honeyed talk of philanthropy and human rights. As for Henry Morton Stanley, the world-famous explorer whom Leopold retained as his agent, he is depicted as a Dickensian bully and chronic liar who allowed his own monumental celebrity to be used by Leopold for the worst possible ends. Mm. And I think that it's true. Like, uh, cartoonish, megalomaniac, I'm like, yeah, the the way that he handles uh, characterizing Leopold, I think, is is probably the... The bits of characterization that I have the most issues with, um, he's like over villainous in some ways. I'm sure there's some. He's got to have some good aspects, anyway. That's not the the focus. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, like yeah. even with with um, with Stanley, like he he straight up in the book compares him to Dickens. Like he says, he's like. He or that Stanley sees himself as a character from Dickens, like he just. So I, I was like, yeah, I, I agree that sometimes like the characterization can be a
0: bit over the top. I mean, one of them is literally an orphan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Does it get more yeah. Dickensian than that? We got an orphan climbing, you know, climbing to the heights of society or, or of life and adventure, and yeah, I think yeah. The, there would be a clear novelistic way to write, especially Stanley's book. You know, it's just an adventure story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so yeah yeah
1: and then uh finally she says uh hawkschild writes about these horrifying events with tightly controlled anger and he brings equal passion to his account of the small band of protesters who orchestrated resistance to leopold's rule and i and i do like i, I think that where i see the the passion um is is in descriptions of like the in moral encasement uh, who worked so hard <laughs> mm-hmm. to try to to end um, the the cruelties that were happening in the Congo so um, I, I appreciated that as well
0: yeah the Well, I think I kind of covered it, I guess, in my, I don't have much more to reiterate, but yeah, the the novelistic parts with the character work as such as we can call them characters, not real people, Yeah. but it is, I think it's some of the best and then also most questionable parts, which is an intriguing combo to have because it's, if you can, I'm sure like, you know, quote unquote, real historians would, I don't know, take umbrage with little moments like the one I quoted earlier, maybe too many assumptions are made, but you have to keep it readable too. So it's a balance. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this review? Uh, nope that was that was it. Tightly controlled anger. I l- yeah, that's a good phrase. I was just picking back yeah. over these reviews again, looking for looking for moments of agreement, disagreement. But yeah, I think. The conclusion, too, he has that kind of restraint and he does ask the questions rather bluntly. I think he um, yeah. I always advise student writers against rhetorical questions just because I find them to be like they, they don't do them well and they're just kind of a crutch. <laughs> and so it's like I always try and push him away from using them. But he does some pretty mm-hmm. pointed ones that are I think he does it just because he wants to confront something aggressively and a rhetorical question is his way of doing that. So it's sort of like at the end. Don't, do you remember when he says something like, why don't we care about other colonies <laughs> or like, or like mm-hmm. why do people care so much about this place and not other ones like why don't p pe- why yeah. didn't people care as much about what the french were doing in was it senegal or the, the nearby area and so yeah i think i think his way his tonal way is maybe the rhetorical question so mm-hmm. um excellent any other thoughts on that review uh nope Okay, let's jump to an unexpected source though it should have been expected. I went to Human Rights Watch. It was also I think the first search. <laughs> first Google search. Um, but human oh, have we had nice. I, I mean have we had a review from Human Rights Watch? I doubt it. <laughs> a non-profit international organization kind of <laughs> organization, kinda like Am- Amnesty International which he talks about. Yeah. Yeah. Not dissimilar to that. I, so, yeah, they, they had a book review by Eric, I believe it's Garcetti or Garcetti, who's the co-chair of Young Advocates in, the, in California, I guess. Um, and he wrote a review. This review was from 99, so it's also an older review. Hothschild's Purpose is not just to chronicle the brutality of Belgian colonialism, but also to tell the story of the courage of individuals who tried to uncover the scale of human suffering in the Congo. What do you think? Does that sound about right? it's a summary of the whole book
1: (laughs) it is
0: (laughs) yeah Does does that feel right to you anything you missed in the summary
1: i don't think so i think that's pretty accurate i i think even more so the the focus on the the courage of the individuals who tried to uncover the scale of human suffering i think that was his real real focus in a lot of ways too
0: yeah and it's as if he loses interest in Leopold's story kind of in the second half obviously Leopold's For also sure. less directly involved because he's aging and everything but I do think once the once the resistant movement starts Hothschild really does want to explore that how they resisted yeah. what it what was effective and ineffective how they succeeded and failed so yeah that yep. part I agree with um, mm-hmm. another quote moral is joined by a rich cast of human rights activists among them William Shepard and Roger Casement uh, Shepard and African American Presbyterian missionary escaped the discrimination of the Jim Crow South and was embraced by the powerful Cuba Kingdom to become one of the first non-Africans to travel to the Cuba capital. Also, he's the guy, this is me interjecting, he's the guy who had the trial brought against him, right? He, like, won that famous trial there. It was a big event. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, Casement, and then he ends, Hofschild also includes the voices of many Congolese who struggled to resist Leopold's voracious quest for rubber. The final point I would just add, I... Many voices seems a little generous. And also, Hotschild <laughs> goes out of his way many times to say how frustrating it is because very few first-hand accounts of people from the Congo exist. Like, not exactly. many native Congolese had a direct say or even were, you know, cited, reference quoted. Um, he does a couple of clever things, like he uses some kind of memories and oral storytelling quotes and kind of some traditions or even myths that came from this time. But he, yep. yeah, I, including that, includes the voices of many, is, is I think a little misleading. Hothschild himself would probably admit that it's very frustrating because there just aren't that many Congolese who were represented and recorded. I
1: agreed, yeah. The <laughs> to say many Congolese voices, I, I think, is to um, have misread. Yeah. (laughs) This
0: book. (laughs) And he, yeah, and it's just especially kind of, I don't know, I can chuckle at it just because it's one of his stated frustrations. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. uh, He doesn't, from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't often, (laughs) during the research or when he's presenting his uh, historical work and research, he doesn't often say his own struggles and annoyances, but that is one of them that he says many times (laughs) I've struggled with this. This annoyed me. Like, it was frustrating. I'm trying to convey this and I'm having a hard time. Like, he does that. So anyway, I thought that was kind of a strange, yeah, strange inclusion. Otherwise, I think it's a fine description. Um, Let's get to the important quote here, Amanda. It's coming back around. The book reads like a novel, rich in anecdote and benefiting from Hothschild's sharp eye for detail. We learn that the great explorer Stanley was, in fact, an insecure, cruel, lying, self-invented man who once cut off his dog's own tail, cooked it, and fed it to the dog when he was upset with it. We learn that of the Baroque perversities of Leopold's own family, perhaps most troubling is to realize that without Leopold, someone else would have been there to implement a brutal and horrifying system of colonial labor and he references the french congo yet the courage perseverance and determinations of individuals like moral shepherd and casement revealed injustices that allowed the world if only for a moment to see who the true savages were and then he really left williams off that list he was the first one. Mm, yep. <laughs> Justice yep. for Williams again. <laughs> he, he was the first. He, he had the clearest sense of it all. Um, yeah, yeah, funny. Uh, any thoughts on that final quote? I don't know if I love taking a racially charged term and then turning it against the racist. Like, I, you know, it's, it's fine, I guess, but it's a little strange. Um, it's a very uh, Joseph Conrad thing to do. Yeah. Or it's kind of like, we call them barbarians, but we're the real barbarians. It's like, can't, I don't know. It's just weird to use the term that was leveraged against the native peoples.
1: Yeah, it is. It is a bit strange to do that. Um, and again, like the rich in anecdote and benefiting from Hawkschild's sharp ivory detail. I guess, yeah, he does have... Um, uh like like the quote that I had read earlier about the handwriting, like that, that kind of detail. Yeah, I really appreciated that kind of stuff and it made it more I I think uh palatable as a as a read for me. Um Rich anecdote, I guess? I don't know. Uh, but I definitely, I still don't think that the book Reads like a novel
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would also say I can't believe we haven't gotten to this basic point By now, uh, given all of our discussion Today, but I think the things we just Love about novels, uh history books Should not do <laughs> Yeah, Be weird yeah. and ambiguous, take weird <laughs> Risks, uh, include strange Details and Uh, odd beats of humor like Saunders maybe or like include long moments of imagery that build a mood and tension and atmosphere it's like yeah history should not do those things (laughs) or at least Yeah, yeah. yeah not not to the level we um we would think or would want so yeah. anyway yeah that's that's worth pointing out too i think the novel thing is i it's fine maybe it's a critic's crutch or something with this when it comes to this book but i i don't dislike that description i thought the inclusion of the stanley dog thing felt odd it's just like you could have said a hundred <laughs> things about him that feels a little pandering because of how much people love their dogs which is their you know dogs, he yeah. did a, that's a horrifying thing there's so no dispute there but it's like really you're gonna include that one like okay that's a it, it's weird to have a person's uh um, um, foibles embodied with that anecdote i don't think that exactly represents the man he was but whatever uh, i guess that's that's fine and then um what was the other quote there was one more i don't know oh it was that i already said it sorry it was in the list he doesn't include williams come on yeah let's not already you know you just finished the book let's not forget already that's the point you're making I know. <laughs> the point yeah. you're making is that these people should be remembered and their efforts acknowledged and in that you forget one of the key figures ah heartbreaking there's <laughs> even a picture of williams in there
1: like yeah, it's yeah. he's included in the 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 pictures of all the guys who worked so hard to end belgian rule in congo like yep. in the congo so yeah he
0: he definitely <laughs> the first half of the book relies on that man. <laughs> you know, it's like he, he holds up the whole entire effort. So uh, anyway, okay. Any final thoughts on the critical assistance? I don't think so. All right. Let's jump to our Hall of Fame. I'm going to have you go first. This was the thing I pondered earlier because I realized I did not have mine ready. So why don't you go first and I'll <laughs> freestyle this. <laughs> uh, the Lightly Litter Hall of Fame. We do this for every book at the end of the... At the end of the work, when we finished it and we're wrapping it up, we each pick something to induct from the book. It could be stylistic or um, really anything that the author did, and just something we want to praise and remember it for. What do you think?
1: Yeah. I said um, best use of contemporary comparisons um, by, by doing that, he's making the text relevant to today um, where he talks about lobbying, propaganda, the overall political maneuvering and the economic maneuvering, all those things. He relates to um, some more modern concepts that uh, really showcase how the the story is not just you know something to to look back on for history but to perhaps use as comparisons to our own time
0: yeah i think that's a good one i'm yeah i'm struggling with this because i'm obviously trying to make it up in real time not something i'd recommend (laughs) let's go with, I I suppose because it was the thing in this episode I just jumped on or fixated on, but I'll go with its exploration of the media. Let, Let me put it this way, then I'll try and put it in some kind of literary sense, get some subtlety for the Hall of Fame. What about his treatment and my appreciation for a clear secondary topic? How about that? Because it's you know the primary topic is we got to understand how the system works. We have to document the atrocities. We have to do it's that's like the primary objective, of course. It's I think it's just that my own fixation was drawn to media things because of how Leopold ran his propaganda empire. Uh, still though, it would be foolish to say this is a book about the media. It's not. It's it's about the you know efforts at colonialism in the Congo and all the horrors. But I, so I think the hall of fame for me though is just he he has such good anecdotes, details, and facts about that secondary topic that yep. I think that's what I'd like to induct because it was it's going to stick with me for sure it's one of the key themes I'll remember about the book and mm-hmm. it's definitely not the I don't know it's not the first thing the book's about so I think that's worth praising yeah for sure I agree yeah any any thoughts on that induction? Uh, no like yeah it was,
1: it was one of the things that I took away aside from like just learning a lot about the Congo um yeah, that, the idea of, like, the media and and, it's, and his perspective on the media, that, <laughs> that's the biggest thing I think I'll take away as well.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Okay, well, I think that wraps up our discussion of King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hotzchild. Any final thoughts or reviews you want to sneak in now that we're at the very end? No, I'm good. Did you end up skimming a lot of the second half? I, I think my reading kind of focus stayed at maybe 90 to 85 percent but I'll admit there were definitely paragraphs when I knew he was going into a long primary source that um, I perhaps did not give my full literary gaze to <laughs> I don't, it's it's tough for me to read this much it, it's a dense book I suppose we'll probably cover this in the recommendation of course but you know it's not light reading despite the novelistic qualities so yeah I don't I don't know if I gave the second half my my 110 percent.
1: Yeah, see, well, overall, like, with with the way that I read the book, I had to take quite a few breaks from it anyway, because it's just so much information. Um, and I would read, like, you know, half of a chapter, and I'd be like, okay, I need to take a break. Like, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a lot
1: of in- information to ingest here.
0: So I will say, um, another kind of meta or overall reading tendency habit thing I noticed is... I, I think this book reads faster than I thought when I was reading. It's sort of a, a time, I don't know, dilation or something. Because when I was reading it, I would think, oh, this is, you know, it's slow. And then I'd look up and I'm like, wow, that only was 20 minutes of reading? Like, i read a lot yeah. more than I thought. So it's, yeah, I don't know, it's kind of fascinating. It's, um, yeah, yeah. it was not a bad reading experience, but you just, yeah, yeah. I think with a lot of the history books we've chosen, you just kind of kind of know the objective, know what you're getting into, so.
1: Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Any other thoughts, though? Let's wrap this up, I suppose. We have other books coming up in order. Uh, We'll list them here in order, I mean. So if you listened all the way through to this one, uh, we appreciate you, as always, listeners. Thanks for sticking with us. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Again, Facebook and Instagram, you can find us there at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So check us out. And as I alluded to, we do have a list of our next upcoming books. And Amanda will tell you about those now.
1: Yeah, next up we have The Psychology of Zelda, edited by Anthony M. Bean, PhD. Uh, so this is a collection of essays. Then we have Piranesi, Piranesi? Piranesi, sure. Yeah. By Susanna Clark, excuse me, which is a novel. And then we have 84, Charing Cross Road by Helen Hanf, which I believe is um, a collection of letters between um, Hanf and um, her friend, uh, a bookstore owner.
0: Yeah. All pretty solid reads and some short ones coming up so if the density yeah. of this book if, if readers or listeners rather you um kept up with this one and read it with us the some of the upcoming books Piranesi and the Charing Cross Road one are especially short so yeah anyway it's different um different styles coming up excellent well thanks as I mentioned as always for listening all the way through if you can rate and review on iTunes or Spotify wherever you're at that helps a ton we appreciate you and thank you and as always we'll see you between the pages